You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual I've met some, ah, uh, what's the word? It's on the tip of my tongue. Oh, right. I have met some kinky motherfuckers. That's the word I was looking for there, motherfuckers. Thank you, Representative Rashida Tlaib, for helping me out. Anyway, I have met some kinky motherfuckers in my time. I've talked to some on this show. I've hooked up with a few. I may have even married one. I like kinky motherfuckers, usually. But I have never met a kinkier or less likable motherfucker than the kinky and repulsive motherfucker behind biblical gender roles. Now, I'd like to think no one reads the website BGR, not to be confused with the Supreme Court Justice RBG, just as I'd like to think no one reads the Wall Street Journal's op-ed page. But both sadly have readers. There's actually a lively discussion under the particular BGR post a listener directed me to. But before we go any further, I'm going to issue a rare content warning Heads up for misogyny, sexual violence, and Bible citations. So after reading Why a Wife Should Endure Painful Sex with Her Husband at BGR, I hoped it was a parody site, The Onion, now with Leviticus, but nope, BGR appears to be on the up and up. And in this 3,200-word article, the author argues he makes the case for Christian wives enduring pain during sex, enduring it and covering it up so as not to needlessly alarm the Christian husband on top of them, causing them pain during sex. The argument goes like this. God created man in his image to bring glory to God, because really, what's more glorious than some pissing, shitting, farting primate? God also created woman, but God created woman for man, not man for woman. Take it from the dudes who wrote the Bible. And according to those same dudes, sex is the natural use of the woman by the man. And a woman's desire for sex was not given to her for her own sake, but rather for the sake of her husband. And finally, in the author's own words, all Christians, both men and women, are called upon to emulate Christ's endurance in the face of suffering and pain. All Christians, but, you know, of course, lady Christians in particular. The author of this post has a chapter and verse citation for each of these points because, of course, he does. The Bible has been used to justify and support everything from slavery to abolition, from killing your children to loving your children, from rich people paying their fucking taxes to rich people buying politicians who will slash their taxes, from condemning Bill Clinton's adultery to excusing Donald Trump's adultery. As we've seen time and time again over the centuries, the good book is only as good as the person reading it or citing it. Now, in fairness, The author does throw the ladies a bone, a bone being the last thing a woman might want to see after enduring painful sex with her husband, but a bone is thrown. A Christian man should not have sex with a woman immediately after childbirth or when she has the flu. And a Christian woman is allowed to consult with her Christian doctor about painful intercourse. But if her Christian doctor tells her that nothing can be done, quote, the answer is clear, even if it's not easy. A wife who suffers from chronic and untreatable painful intercourse must find the strength to endure such pain and not only endure it, but hide it as much as possible from her husband and do her best to fulfill the one purpose for which God designed her, and that is the sexual pleasure of her husband. The author of Why a Wife Should Endure Painful Sex with Her Husband opens by condemning sadism and sadists. 
because it's not okay to have painful sex with someone who might actually enjoy having painful sex with you. It's only okay to inflict painful sex on some poor woman who doesn't enjoy it because Leviticus, Corinthians, Romans, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Say what you like about all the honest out there with ads on kink and fetish websites and sometimes calls here on the Savage Lovecast. At least they're looking for self-aware, self-actualized masochists for people who enjoy a certain amount or certain kind of pain during sex. And these sadists, often portrayed as monsters on crime procedurals, they're willing to negotiate about limits and safe words and even go get a bottom of a little ice cream after a particularly intense scene. Good and decent sadists don't manipulate their partners with Bronze Age bullshit about magic sky friends threatening them with damnation and eternal suffering if they don't suck it up or lay there and endure it here on earth. Good and decent sadists don't do that for the same reason good and decent Christians don't do that. Because it's wrong. After reading all the way through why a wife should endure painful sex with her husband, I had to click on the about section because I really wanted to know more about the website and the author. Larry Solomon, not his real name, is passionate about theology, history, human nature, and computers. He works in IT, taught Sunday school. The About Me section goes on and on and on. Larry is white, a white male in his 40s, attended a Christian high school, has various technical certificates, and does not write under his own name, he says, for the same reason Christ hid himself from the Jews. I'm no biblical scholar myself, but I kind of remember, recall, believe that Christ himself was a Jew. Anyway, you have to endure the pain of reading all the way to the end of the About Me section before you get to this. Well, first, before we get to this, if you're standing, please sit. If you're driving, please pull over. If you're sucking a dick, what comes next could transform that dick into a choking hazard, so please put the dick down. Everybody ready? Okay. At the end of the About Me section, you will find this. I was divorced from my first wife after she committed adultery. Yup. The wife of the man behind articles like Why a Wife Should Endure Painful Sex with Her Husband and its companion piece How a Husband Can Enjoy Sex That Causes His Wife Pain, as well as other epic biblical citation spec articles like Why Husbands Are Not Accountable to Their Wives and Why God Wants You to Stay in an Abusive Relationship, that man's wife decided after who knows how many shitty, painful sexual encounters, not to mention who knows how many shitty, painful conversations, she decided to go fuck someone else. And after fucking that someone else, she decided to divorce Larry's sorry ass. That's what I was divorced means. Larry writes, I was divorced. That means he didn't divorce her. His first wife divorced him. And who can blame her? Jesus forgave the woman taken in adultery. Taken in adultery is Bible speak for caught in the act. Telling the angry mob that wanted to stone that woman to death, the angry mob of men outside the Jewish temple where Jesus was hiding from the Jews that day, he told them that the man without sin should cast the first stone and then told the woman, taken in adultery, to go home and sin no more. John 7.53 to 8.11. I'm guessing Jesus would have done the same for Larry's wife. Told the mob and Larry to fuck off and then given Larry's wife the name of a nice single Jewish divorce lawyer along with his blessing to keep fucking guys better than Larry at sex and better than Larry at Christianity too. Okay, we've got a great show for you today, a great micro edition, the free edition of Savage Lovecast, and the subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast, which you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, twice as long and no ads, is also pretty great. Lots of greatness coming up for you today on the Savage Lovecast. 
Hi, Dan. I'm a late 20s woman on the West Coast. I'm dating a wonderful, really lovely, smart, generous, GGG, non-binary person who's in an open relationship. It's all really cool. I'm stoked about everything that's going on. The one thing is that they have a Hitler mustache. I don't ever want to be a person who tells somebody what to do with their body and particularly their body hair, but I hate it. I don't like it. I don't like it. I'm Jewish. They're not Jewish. It really weirds me out. I want them to do like whatever they want with their body, but I am like inviting them to come with me to a Hanukkah party. Weird. It's weird. Uh, like, I feel like I have to warn my friends and, like, put an asterisk and be like, they're not a Nazi. This person says that they always liked the look. And if we're not allowed to have that mustache anymore at all, if no one's allowed to have it anymore, then Hitler wins. I don't know. What do I do? Can I, what can, what can I do? What is reasonable for me to do or say in this situation. Thank you for jumping on the phone. I had to talk to you one-on-one. <laughs> okay. And, and I want to open with this. Before we get to anything else, Hitler won the mustache. Lost, lost the war, lost France and, and Poland, and ultimately his shitty, mean, miserable life. But he won the mustache and the swastika yeah, and the goose step and the Hitler salute. He won all of those. And there's no I agree. taking those back from Hitler. So I'm actually calling you to ask you how the Hanukkah party went with the Hitler mustache person friend. Well, it it went fine. What I've started to notice is that very few people except for the few bold people say anything in the moment. It's only after where I'm like, Oh, so I'm like seeing this person and they're like, Oh yeah, the mustache guy. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh yeah, that guy, you know? So no one, I mean, a couple people have said something in the moment, but it's always after the fact. And after the fact did they come up to you and say, are you fucking crazy? Why are you dating this lunatic? <laughs> No, I mean, like, when you talk to this person for all of 30 seconds, like, it doesn't, you don't think that they're a Nazi or, like, a fascist or a racist. So I don't I don't know if it's, like, they're trying to, like, you know, challenge people's assumptions or something, but it, it oh, doesn't feel... It just, it, yeah, I know. It reminds it's a little, me of the anti-racist skinheads from the 80s and 90s mm-hmm. who dressed up like racist, fascist skinheads from 30 years ago and then would like take such offense that you might think that they were fascists even though they were running around dressed up exactly like fucking fascist violent racist skinhead gang members yeah i think you're right on that i think it's a little bit like that it's like how could you possibly think this of me you're wearing hitler's fucking mustache yeah i'm sorry it's toxic it's just like the people who go well but the swastika is this ancient indian symbol that means infinity and life and joy and whatever else the fuck so i got it tattooed on my forehead how dare you think that i'm implying that there's anything (laughs) nazi about the swastika i have tattooed on my fucking forehead that's funny that you bring that up because they brought up the 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 other swastika too oh for fuck's sake it's a kind of (laughs) pedantic game playing where someone 
you know, is like, well, no, no, I don't, you, it's, you're, you have the problem. You're the one who's thinking Hitler when you see this mustache or the swastika or the fact that I'm goose-stepping around at your Hanukkah party. You're the one with the party. The, you, the problem, you know, the Prussians were goose-stepping before the Nazis. Like that kind of pedantic game-playing horseshit. Yeah. You shouldn't put up with it. Hitler won the mustache. That's it. Hitler won the mustache. <laughs> Lost the fucking war. Won the fucking mustache. And it's his for it's just for the same reason you go to Germany. You don't meet kids named Adolf. I go to Germany and Austria a lot. I have friends there. And I never meet mm-hmm. a twenty year old named Adolf. Or a thirty year old named right. Adolf. Or a forty year old to, named Adolf. Like put a pin in that name and like forget about it. It's yeah. over. But I here's my question is like this person really are seems to believe that this is like the most flattering facial hair situation on them no i disagree <laughs> no it is not the most flattering facial hair situation on anyone because there's I, not a person on I the do. planet who looks at that mustache and doesn't think fan of adolf hitler's yeah and, I, and i'm sorry <laughs> like, what do i do so what do I do? You can't tell someone else what to do with their body. You can't tell someone else right. what to do with their facial hair. But they can't tell you what to do with your body or your face. Do you think I should like with the whole like be like I don't want to do this anymore because I can't. Okay. I can't date you. I can't date you while you're playing this game. I can't date mm-hmm. a person who engages in such sophistry. Mm-hmm. And, and and antagonizes people and then sits there pretending that butter won't melt in his ass. This is antagonizing mm-hmm. people. <laughs> okay. What you're doing is risible or risable. I never know how to say that word. I should look it up. Risible, risable. What you're doing is provocative, and then you're pretending that everybody else is the one with the problem or that they're the ones provoking you by suggesting there's something Hitlery about your fucking Hitler mustache. Oh, man. It's, it's just so weird. It, it doesn't it's so com- weird. It's not an exact comparison, but – my husband, my husband, anybody mm-hmm. who follows him on Instagram, every once in a while he has a mustache. I do. Okay. Every once in a while he has a mustache. Yeah. It's when mm-hmm. I'm out of town. <laughs> because he cannot have a mustache when I have to look at his face. And he, you oh, know, he has funny. made the like, I should be able, it's my face and you shouldn't be able to tell me what to do with it. And I'm like, all right, I'm not telling you what to do with your face, but you can't tell me what to do with my face. And my face is not touching your face while that thing <laughs> is on your lip. And so, and so, okay, it's a stalemate. I'm not telling you what to do with your face, but I'm not fucking kissing you. I'm not even going to look at you. I can't turn my face toward your face when you have that porn stash. Yeah. And and you should be able to say to him, I am not telling you, you can't have that mustache, but I am telling you, you can't have me while you have that mustache. Mm -hmm. And you have to make a choice Mm -hmm. between the Hitler stash or the girlfriend. (laughs) Oh my God. It's so silly. Okay. But it's, All right. you know, in a way, it's, in a way, it's not silly, particularly in this cultural, in this climate right now, when we have Richard Spencer, when we have Nazis yeah. running around, you know, running cars into groups of anti-fascist protesters and killing people, and we have yeah, like why would you want to beg the question at, at this all? moment? You walking yeah. around with that mustache is making people fear. For their safety, right. fear for their country, fear for the direction in which we are headed. This is not a moment where you can play games and, yeah. and and put yourself out there in public in such a way that people think you're with Richard Spencer. You're making people feel unsafe right. and uncomfortable and threatened. And it's assholery. 
It's assholery dressed yeah. up in this like, oh, we can't let Hitler win. It's assholery dressed up in this what, what, you, what? I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, wait, it's just a month. No, no, it is not just a mustache, just like it's not just a swastika. Like it's not just, mm-hmm. you know, the, but the Romans saluted in this way. Fuck you. No, the Nazis yeah. won the Hitler salute. That's why it's called the Hitler salute. And the Nazis won the goose step and the mustache and the swastika. And that's all they fucking won. Sure. And you know what? Yeah. You can't let him win this. <laughs> you, he okay. has to pay the price. Or, or I'm sorry, they have to pay the price. He uses both. You're not doing anything wrong. Okay, good. I'm not going to get glittered the next time I leave the house. He, no, they, no, no, no. them, they have to yeah. pay the price, which is, yeah, you can wear a fucking Hitler mustache. You're not going to get invited to a lot of Hanukkah parties, though. And I'm shocked that you I, took you know, him to I the one that him. you took I him to. I said to him, I was like, would you want to come to the Hanukkah party? He said, yes. And then I was like, oh my God, your mustache. And like, we laughed about it and then like, didn't talk about it. And then you took him? Yeah. And then he came and he like hit it off with all the friends. I mean, you know, it was like, but it just, it's, it's just fucking weird. It's, it's a weird choice. Yeah. There are 7 billion other human beings on the planet. 3.5 yeah. of them are, yeah. you know, penis havers and, you have many to choose from who don't have Hitler mustaches and aren't going to play these kind of pedantic games. Yeah, I hear you. So end it. And maybe, you know, maybe you <laughs> threatening to end it will be the leverage and the excuse he needs to reluctantly shave that fucking Hitler mustache off his goddamn upper lip. <laughs> it's so weird. It's weird to kiss. It's was very gonna, weird. That was my other question for you. <laughs> you're a nice Jewish lady. You're going to have sex with this person. What goes through your mind when you like look down between your legs, they're eating your pussy. And then that face comes up and there's that soaking wet Hitler mustache. How can yeah. you maintain your, how do you yeah, not like become the Sahara on. at that moment? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, he's super attractive, like in every other way. <laughs> uh, and like really good at sex. Like, uh, really very, very good. He would have to be really good at sex to compensate for yeah. the soaking wet, pussy-juice-infused yeah. Hitler mustache between your legs. Yeah. My vagina, if I had one, would close up at that moment permanently. Mm-hmm. I would roll a stone in mm-hmm. front of it like Jesus' tomb. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you, Dan. You're welcome. This was very helpful. I hope so. I hope it was clarifying, and, and good luck. It and, was. I'm glad that you had such a strong reaction. Nice person, good sex. Hopefully the good sense to look at you and think, yeah, worth it to keep her in my life. I'm going to get rid of the fucking Hitler mustache. That's how I hope this plays out. Thank you. I love your show. Really, really do. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Hi, Dan. Uh, This is a 30-year-old female calling from New York. Um, I have a quick question for you. I listen to your podcast a lot, and although I think I know the answer, I think it's best to have another perspective. So I've just recently broken up um, from a seven-year relationship. Um, I moved out, got my own place, and I've been living solo for 10 months now. Um, I haven't been dating. I haven't been talking to anyone. I haven't been entertaining anything. I'm literally workaholic. And um, just recently, um, there was a corporate holiday party that I had went to, and um, basically everyone kind of got shit-faced, right? Um, everyone's feelings are all over the place or whatever, and it ends up being that one of my coworkers told me that they had feelings for me, like professing since the moment I met you, I've seen this, and blah, 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 and I wanted to see if we can work things out, blah, blah, blah. 
the coworker is actually a woman. And ever since we had that conversation, I haven't stopped thinking about her. Um, it's really kind of crazy. Um, I feel like I've become this obsessive stalker kind of person, whereas, you know, we've been talking all the time, texting, messaging a lot, especially in the past few weeks. And I say constant, I mean, it's all the time. And um, just recently, it stopped. Now, it's only been two weeks, so I know I'm just like really, really hyper energy, whatever the case is, but I, I think it stopped because I feel like I might have been too eager or have come off a little bit too aggressive. Like our messaging went from intimate to about my past and how I grew up. And I think the biggest thing was the sexting part, um, which kind of threw me off because I've never done that with any guy before, not even, and I've done it with exes or whatever in relationships, but I haven't expressed myself sexually to someone so quick. And um, the messaging hasn't ceased completely, but it's definitely not the same. And I don't know how to process these feelings. I'm sitting here looking at my phone, wondering when she's going to text me again. I know when she's getting off of work. I know, you know, where she lives. It's, it's crazy. I've known her for years. So I just need your help on this because I never felt this way for anyone and let alone a woman, which is pretty scary. As far as I know, I'm heterosexual and um, this person has awoken something in me and I don't know what to do. I don't think we can demand closure from another human being. Closure is something that we do ourselves. We shut those doors, but we can ask for clarity. We can ask for information You've noticed what you've noticed. Things have slowed. Things have cooled. And your assumption is that maybe you came on too strong. Well, you told me about that. You told all of us about that. You can tell her about that. This has all been going on during the holidays. All of this crazy texting, all of this crazy sexting. Your entire relationship after this woman confessed that she had feelings for you was really funneled and processed and crammed through your phones. And it coincided with busy, stressful holiday time. This could just be a coincidence. You could be misreading the fact that she hasn't been as available to you in the last couple of weeks over the holidays as she was initially as she cooled on you. And it, it could be that she's just been really stressed out and super busy with holiday shit and family shit and hasn't had as much time to devote to sexting. Or it could be that after getting out of this seven-year relationship and being celibate and on your own for 10 months, you came on a little strong. You got a little overeager and perhaps you spooked her. And if she says that to you, you can then respond with, yeah, sorry about that. It's been 10 months since I got laid. I probably did come on a little too strong. I'm going to slow my roll. I'm going to show you that I have the emotional maturity and dexterity to hear that from you and not freak out and not get angry and adjust my behavior, which is a skill that we want to see in people that we're contemplating dating or committing to. So you can demonstrate that to her in that moment. And the skill you want to see from her, what you want to see from someone you're considering dating is that they can give you constructive feedback. And then when you make an adjustment, appreciate that you were able to make that adjustment and to re-engage with you. And if she's not willing to do that, if she has some sort of one strike you're out policy, that's not somebody that you would want to get involved with anyway. So you're going to have a conversation with her about what's going on right now without getting too processy about it. And then you're going to show her through how you respond to the feedback that you get from her that you're someone she might want to think about dating and reengaging with. And she's going to show you through giving you this feedback and being receptive to this adjustment that you're able to make 
that she's someone that you might want to think about dating. And if she doesn't show you that or you don't show her that, then you can just move the fuck on. And this was just a crush that burnt out. That also is a thing that sometimes happens. And I want to pivot here to just a a general point about connections that we make online. When a dating app or a hookup app brings you together or you meet somebody and you exchange your phone numbers and then you engage in a lot of DMing and texting and sexting, that can burn up and burn through a lot of erotic and sexual energy. You can wear that out. That can burn up and burn out the erotic energy that attracted you to each other in the first place. You want to, you know, flirt a little bit, maybe sext a little bit, but then you want to get together. You don't want all of the energy, all of the erotic energy to be plowed into your phone. You want to plow some of that into each other in real life, in real time. And phones have a way of disinhibiting us. And sometimes when we're on our devices, we're a little bit more forward than we would be in person. Because it is, even if we're sexting or texting with somebody that we know, it is kind of anonymous. It is a a faceless form of communication. And you can get out over your skis emotionally, erotically, sexually, and that can put somebody off. Or you can get out over your skis emotionally, erotically, socially and lose interest or, or cause them to lose interest because they feel like they've explored everything they could possibly explore with you erotically without ever having to be in your presence. And they can lose that desire to actually get into your presence if you're giving them really everything on their phone. So don't waste too much time texting and DMing and sexting with someone that you're interested in. You want to do that a little bit. But if you're interested in being with them for real, dating them, fucking them for real, in real life, in real time, get with them. Hi, Dan. I'm a 22-year-old cisgender straight male, and I had a quick question for you about the legal risks of engaging in light BDSM and spanking play. Recently, in a set of circumstances that are an entire other issue, I gave my parents access to a set of text messages between me and someone I was potentially going to be hooking up with. Uh, In the text, me and this girl were, in my opinion, flirting, talking about her not believing that I was, in fact, kinky, her saying that she likes it rough, and me indicating that I was into some kink play. My dad says that these kinds of texts, as well as this kind of play, or rather this kink play, could lead to a false claim or a claim in general of me assaulting someone, and that in addition, the texts themselves could be used as evidence against me. I was wondering if you had any experience or guidelines for someone beginning to explore this kink play, and also a response for when my parents ask me why I get pleasure from beating up girls, even though this is not my actual kink, and also say that this kind of behavior could land me in jail. Um, As a side note, I am attempting to move out, but financially, that's not possible. You just need to tell your parents to butt out of your private life. You're a 22-year-old adult, and adults sometimes engage in rough sex, in BDSM, in light spanking, and it's none of their business. And if you really feel like you have to get into it, if your dad insists on having this conversation with you about your legal liabilities, tell him it is better for you to have this negotiation over text where there's proof that this was mutually consented to and mutually desired sex play and you didn't just suddenly start spanking some girl in the middle of sex. If you wind up in bed with some sociopath who wants to be spanked but then is going to run to the police and show them your handprint on her ass and get you arrested and prosecuted for assault – You'll want to have those texts, having those texts where you're flirting and bantering about the sex play, where you're negotiating about the consensual 
sex that you would like to have with this person that involves some rough play is going to get you sprung. You're going to be able to produce that at trial very dramatically. Your lawyer can throw it on the table and you will be exonerated and your parents will not have to worry. And there are lots of books about BDSM out there. There are lots of articles that you can send your parents about BDSM. Google, find a few, send them to them. Tell them that you don't want to discuss this with them. But if they're curious about why some people are turned on by these things, they should do a little bit of reading. But what they're not going to do anymore is speak with you about it. This is your private life. These are your private sexual interests and encounters. And they are none of your parents' business. Period. Hi, Dan. I'm a mid-20s female living in the South right now, and my question is about my boss. I work just for a guy. Um, I'm an independent contractor. I do um, archival work on this guy's computer, and I use his computer regularly, and he keeps leaving porn out, and I keep finding it on his computer. I'm like kind of hysterical right now because I just opened our shared Evernote, and there's a list of like amateur teen porn links from X hamster saved onto our Evernote. Um, it's I'm just, he's such a dumbass, And I think I'm going to quit my job anyway. But I'm wondering if it's my responsibility to have a conversation with him about this. I don't think he's leaving it up there for me to find intentionally because he gets off on it or anything. I really just think he knows enough about technology to find the porn and save it somewhere, but not enough about technology to hide it from me. I've also found like I've opened up his internet browser with him looking over my shoulder uh, on my first day of work. And there was just like a giant cock on the screen. Um, And I kind of ignored it because I I was just so flabbergasted. Um, We both just kind of ignored it. But now I'm kind of at the point where I'm thinking I'm going to quit anyway. And I'm wondering if it's my responsibility to have a conversation with him about this. You're giving him the benefit of a doubt that I wouldn't necessarily be inclined to give him and that others certainly wouldn't be inclined to give him. That all of this porn that he's leaving strewn about for you to find, including for you to find while he's looking over your shoulder, that he's doing all of these things by accident. Once can be regarded as a misfortune. Twice looks like carelessness. Three or four times looks intentional. That's what I would say to him if I were you. Look, I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. Another employee, your next employee, because here's my letter of resignation, I'm putting my two weeks in, might sue you. I could sue you. What you're doing legally is called creating a hostile work environment. And I don't think you did it on purpose. I'm giving you the benefit of that doubt. Your next employee, though, might call a lawyer, not just get her resume out there, and find a new job, which is what I decided to do in part because I was sick of looking at giant cocks on your computer screen and having to see when I'm doing the job that you hired me to do, having to look into your dick. The things that turn you on, the things that make your dick hard are not things that I as your employee should know about or be forced to contemplate. And your carelessness has forced me to contemplate that. And I regard it, you could say to him, as carelessness. Your next employee might not be so understanding, indulgent, might not be so willing to give you the benefit of the doubt that I've given you. So, dude, you want some advice? Get a separate computer. 
that you only use for porn. You own this company. You can fucking afford it. That extra computer, that other computer that is your fun time computer is going to be a lot less expensive at the end of the day than the lawsuit that's coming your way from your next employee if you keep this shit up. Hi, Dan and crew. I'm a 21-year-old pansexual woman, and I've been with my boyfriend for over five years. Uh, Since we have been together since I was 16 and he was 18, uh, we've explored a lot of firsts together. We've always been very honest and communicative with each other and comfortable. I try to always be GGG, and I'm willing to try almost anything once. And for the last year and a half, we have been in an open relationship, and it's been really great for the both of us. I found that I am definitely a more submissive person in bed, uh, especially with men. I haven't slept with a woman yet, but feel like I might be a bit more dominant with them. Uh, So what I'm calling about is my boyfriend's biggest fantasy is to be pegged. Uh, This isn't something I particularly want to do, uh, but I'm willing to do it for him um, at some point. I just don't feel ready yet. Um, You know, I'm still young. I feel like I'm just now really starting my sexual career (laughs) and exploring uh, my submissive side. I don't feel like I'd be traumatized by it or crying on the bathroom floor, like you say. But if I'm going to fulfill this fantasy for him, I want to, to be confident and dominant in the way he wants me to be and be all in not half-ass it or ruin it for him. Uh, He brings this up pretty often, and I kind of just keep putting it off and reminding him we're in an open relationship, and he's open, or he is welcome to explore this with someone else. Um, But he does want his first time to be with me, and I understand because being penetrated is such a vulnerable experience. Um, I get that he wants it to be with someone he trusts and is most comfortable with. So now I just feel a lot of pressure, uh, and I don't know really when I'll be up for it. Uh, so what I'm asking is, should I just suck it up and do this for him? Um, and Dan, does this not does this make me not GGG? Being GGG does not mean doing anything and everything that your partner asks you to do. It means having an open mind. GGG, good giving and game for anything within reason. You have reservations about performing this particular act that your boyfriend is interested in experiencing and you've given him permission. You're in an open relationship. You've encouraged him that if he wants to experience this to go find another partner who might be more comfortable pegging him than you are at this moment in your relationship. And he responded with a a perfectly reasonable argument, not an argument, a feeling he shared with you that this is really intimate. It involves him being very vulnerable and he wants to do that in the context of your committed relationship or a committed relationship. He doesn't want to do that with some rando he met on the street. He wouldn't feel safe or comfortable literally opening up with some stranger. He wants to open up his ass with you ideally. So you're both being GGG and you're involved in this ongoing negotiation. I feel like the hang up here for you is he wants to be submissive And he wants you to be dominant and you are submissive. You feel submissive. You're more comfortable in the submissive role and that's where you're comfortable exploring right now. And I just want to share with you a little perspective from Homoland. There are things called power bottoms and there are things called service tops. There is this idea that the person doing the penetrating is always the driver, always the dominant one, always the one in charge, always the aggressor. And the person getting fucked is always submissive and passive and that's not always the case. Now, sometimes power bottom is used to mean just some guy who's really good at getting fucked in the ass and really enjoys it, can really take it. But sometimes it means that the bottom, the person being fucked, 
is really driving the scene. They're bossing the top around. They're ordering this person to fuck them. And you often see this in straight BDSM porn where there is a female dom who is being fucked by a male sub. And it is possible for her to take her pleasure from him and be in charge, be the dominant partner, even in an act where she is the penetrated partner. You could do that here. You can be the submissive pegging top, at least initially, at least until you're more comfortable. Because what your boyfriend's asking you to do is really two things at once. Peg him for the first time. You've never done pegging before. You are uncomfortable. You've never done this before. And you're worried about how that's going to go and how that's going to feel. And you're inexperienced. And you have those anxieties around inexperience. He's also asking you potentially at the same time to perform dominance. And you're not necessarily comfortable with that either. And pairing those two things together is putting a lot of pressure on you and you're experiencing kind of performance anxiety. It's not just that I have to peg you for the very first time that you've ever been pegged in your life, but I have to pretend that I know what I'm doing. I have to order you around. I have to drive the scene. And I would encourage you both to back the fuck up. You need to do some anal play. You need to experience some anal pleasure. You need to do things that aren't fucking his ass or yours and just get comfortable with some anal stimulation and anal pleasure, use vibrators, get a butt plug or two and just do some low stakes, low bore, literally low bore anal play where you're having orgasms and your anuses are engaged and you're making a positive association between anal stimulation and pleasure and then work your way up to a dildo, then work your way up to a dildo that is attached to you. And at least the first couple of times, take dominant submission out of it. Until you're comfortable with the act, until you're comfortable with anal play, until you're comfortable penetrating him, you're not going to add the added layer of being the dominant, of ordering him around, of, of performing a DS scene on top of the pegging play that he would like to experience. So you're going to separate these two things. You're going to do some anal, do some pegging, get comfortable with the act, and then down the road, you're going to add that layer of you're the dom, you're the mistress, you're the top, and he's submitting to you. But at first, it's not submission. At first, it's mutual play. And then when you get to a certain degree of comfort with the act, you can flip back and forth where there might be times when you peg him and you're the dom, and there might be times where you peg him and he's the dom, where he's being the power bottom, where you're being the submissive top. You can do it. Hi, Dan. I am a cis woman, uh, heteroflexible, living in the Midwest and married to a cis man who is uh, heterosexual. I have a question today about blowjobs in the context of my relationship. So my husband cannot come from oral, and he is the first man I've ever encountered who can't, um, but that's okay, and uh, he still enjoys it. I really enjoy it. I enjoy giving it uh, and getting it, but but honestly, I enjoy giving it even more. I've always been into this. We met in the BDSM scene. I am always the sub. He's always the top. So um, I really like giving head as a way of servicing my, my top. So here's the issue. He says he still enjoys getting head from me, even though it can't make him come. But the problem is when I'm giving him head, he just lays there silently with his eyes closed. He doesn't really interact with me at all. And this makes me feel like I'm not doing a good job or he doesn't like it. And the problem is I have talked to him about this. I've brought it up and 
told him, you know, if you could just like, you know, feel me up or tell me I'm doing a good job or, you know, tell me it feels good, make a little sound, anything to interact with me, that would be great. And he adjusted and was a little more handsy during and made some noises. But over time, over the last couple of months, he sort of reverted back to his like zombie blowjob default where he just lays there, doesn't say anything, doesn't make any sounds, eyes closed. And it just makes me feel like shit. Um, I am enthusiastic about giving head. I've had lots of previous partners sing my praises about how good I am at it. So I'm just wondering, how do I revisit this with him in a way that will stick? Because we've had this conversation more than once, and he will, you know, be better for a while, interact with me more, and then he'll revert back. Uh, I should mention this is only related to giving head. When we have sex, he's very interactive. He talks dirty. He, um, you know, makes me feel like he's uh, interested in what we're doing and engaged in it. It's just this one sex act that he seems to completely zone out of and just disappear on me on. So, um, Dan, what do you think? How do I revisit this with him in a way that it's going to stick? Or do we have a bigger conversation about if this is something he actually wants? Two suggestions. First, you can have this convo while you're giving him head. If it's feedback you want, you can take his dick out of your mouth for just a minute, keep your hand working his cock, and say, do you like that? How's that feel? Are you enjoying this? I love sucking your dick. And you can ask him a question that requires him to respond, and maybe that will shake him out of zombie mode. I have an idea though. I have a theory. I have a hunch that the reason he clamps his eyes shut and lays very still is that oral isn't something that he enjoys. Those guys are out there. Now, some guys can't come from oral alone and they are no more damaged than women who can't come from vaginal penetration alone. Oral is always portrayed in films and television and in porn as some sort of magic formula. Dick, ad, mouth, instantaneous orgasm. Not always the case. That's why they're called blowjobs. They're a lot of work and they don't work for everybody. And guys who can't come from oral sex, they feel like they're damaged or broken somehow. And the women that they're with or the guys that they're with will write me wondering what's wrong with them. And a lot of people who have partners, male partners who can't come or penis having partners who can't come from oral alone will regard them as damaged or defective or wonder what they're doing wrong or will get into some insecurity spiral about it instead of just accepting that this isn't a thing that works for everybody. Works for most, not for all. In addition to those guys, there are guys out there who just don't like it, who've tried it and just don't care for it. It's not their favorite thing. Your husband might be one of those guys, and I think you need to have a conversation about him where you just put that on the table. If you don't like having your dick sucked, then that's okay. And I think you might want to just toss that on the table. You might want to ask him if he just doesn't like blowjobs. And the reason I have a hunch that that might be it is if he's laying back and closing his eyes and going zombie on you, he may be fantasizing about whatever he needs to fantasize about at that moment to keep his dick hard while you guys are doing this thing that you enjoy very much and he would like to do with you, allow you to do to him because you take so much pleasure in it, but it's not working for him. It doesn't work for him. And so he has to zone out. He has to leave the room. He has to fantasize about the things that do work for him so that his dick in your mouth stays hard because if he engages – he might lose his erection, and then what are you going to think? 
And what are you going to ask that Dan Savage faggot when you call a show about this problem? So put those both on the table. If you say, look, if you don't like blowjobs, can you just tell me that? And it's nice that I like them and so you, uh, you know, you're allowing for me to do it. And that's, and if you're taking pleasure in my pleasure, I appreciate that. That's sometimes the give and take of a long-term committed sexual relationship where we're both attempting to meet each other's needs and that's legitimate. And if that's not the issue, if you press him on that and that's not it, and it's just, this is how he likes to receive a blowjob with his eyes clamped shut, but that's not how you like to give a blowjob. Then don't just talk to him about the blowjobs. Once in a while, talk to him about the blowjobs during the blowjobs. You can force him to engage. You can force him to be present if indeed he's enjoying these blowjobs. But I hear you. I, I feel your pain. A few months ago in Savage Love, I said I asked somebody if the person they were with was good at getting blowjobs. We always talk about whether someone's good at giving head. There are people out there who are really bad at getting head. They may even be enjoying it. But they don't give you any feedback. They lay there with their eyes shut like a zombie. They're, they're very still. And to be someone who's giving a blowjob, you're doing a lot of work and a little encouragement and feedback. And, and, and being able to perceive that you're giving this person pleasure is inspiring. It's rewarding. It makes the blowjob fun for you too. And it makes you feel some power, actually. You know, a lot of people think giving a blowjob is very submissive, but you've got this person's dick in your mouth. They're really helpless. And if you're causing them to experience all these waves of pleasure, that is an expression in a way of, of power and control that can balance those feelings of submission that for some people kind of make blowjobs feel a little bit uncomfortable. So not getting that kind of feedback, being with someone who's terrible at getting a blowjob can be very dispiriting. So I feel your pain. Sounds like he's terrible at getting blowjobs. Ask him questions. Ask for feedback while you're giving him blowjobs. Maybe he'll get less bad at it over time. But if he just doesn't like head, and some guys don't, there's no fix for that. Hi, Dan. I'm sorry. Uh, it's just I just got out of a a, a, a big fight. Um, come from a big city, and I have a lot of friends and family. But unfortunately for... What I do career-wise, so my boyfriend does career-wise, actually husband, I'm sorry, it wasn't the right place. So after a lot of talking and encouragement also on my side, we both got jobs in a different city. Because this second city is so expensive, we'll live a little bit outside. Um, we both don't have much friends, although he has a couple. Um, and I've been making friends. My job requires me to travel a lot. In any case, he, my boyfriend kept complaining about the traveling, so I switched projects, and now I'm back home. When I get home, it typically we eat dinner, and then I always make time, two hours every night, to spend just with him. The other problem that we have is that when he gets angry, he's very, very aggressive and loud, and I, when I get angry, don't tend to show emotions. I tend to be quiet. I'm not very confrontational. In any case, after... Many fights since we moved here. Today, there was a fight that he was starting about the dishwasher. I don't know, like, um, he was getting really loud. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go out and just let things calm down. And I went out for like an hour just walking, talked to a friend and came back. And he started yelling at me when I got home that how could I leave him alone during the holidays that I'm a manipulative asshole because he doesn't like being alone and I'm keeping him alone and started yelling and yelling and yelling and he kept pushing my buttons. And so 
I started yelling and I don't like to yell because I can't think straight. And in any case, after we calmed down, I told him that the reason for the fight was because he gets aggressive and loud. And I've told him many, many times that I don't like this and that we should talk about things when we calm down or whatever, or at least that he not yell and so that we can argue. And he said that he was under the opinion that he was not yelling and that I just left to leave and that I should consider whether um, if I can't deal with this yelling, then I should just break up with him. I don't know what to do. I don't think I'm going to break up the marriage. It's really fresh. We got married last year and summer. I'm sorry, I can't think straight. Um, and so I don't know. I'm feeling so bad and I don't know whether I can live with this. So my question is, do people stay in marriages or relationships and are, is it okay when one of the partners yells when they're angry or annoyed about something? Is yelling okay? Is this something that other people do? Am I crazy for not wanting it in this relationship, for not wanting to get pregnant and have kids and bring them into a yelling household? That's my question. Well, we kind of had a disagreement about the call when I, after I read the synopsis before I actually listened to the call and heard the pain in the caller's voice and some other details that I think are very relevant, like the way she's been isolated off in the middle of nowhere, far from her support system by this dude. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a disagreement about yelling. I'm from a Irish Catholic loud drunk family where sometimes you process disagreements at an elevated volume, not screaming and yelling and throwing things, not uh, the kind of volume that makes someone fear for their physical safety, but People do raise their voices where I'm from. Um, and so I don't think that yelling or a yeller should be disqualified necessarily from love or companionship. You do. Oh, well, I mean, it doesn't work for me. I'm just like you, caller. I can't stand yelling. My dad was a yeller and like I just would never be able to put up with it. It doesn't mean that other people can't have a healthy yelling relationship, but you can't. So that's that. So we have to add yelling to the pile of other things that you have to establish compatibility about before you marry. And if not before you marry, before you scramble your DNA together, just like we talk about sexual compatibility, the kid issue and whether you're compatible around wanting to have children, religion, all sorts of things that you need to establish basic compatibility about before you can live with someone for decades and decades and decades. Maybe yelling is something that people also need to establish compatibility about or you, caller, need to establish compatibility about. Listen, I'm sure, caller, you just heard your own voice. Listen to how upset you are. Listen to how traumatized you are. And just with the details that you tossed out there, and it seems like you're being fair. Don't, this isn't a call where I think someone is downplaying their own role or culpability and exaggerating their partner's faults to win. And if anything, it seems like you're bending over backwards to paint your partner in a better light than he deserves to be painted in. You married an asshole. Get the fuck out. So many times we've heard Dan say that the only solution is to get in a time machine and go back in time and break up. You don't need the time machine. Congratulations. You can end things here and now, nice and clean, part ways, say it was a mistake, and get on with your life. An overriding concern or just something else for me that is a big red May Day flag is moved away from all of your friends, family, support systems live way outside a city, isolated. You had a job that allowed you to do some traveling and you enjoyed that and you were making friends and at your husband's insistence, you shifted to a different job track at your employer where there is no traveling. 
the way your isolation is escalating over time in this relationship is really worrying and is something that even if there weren't this yelling conflict, I would advise you to look at that and think about that and pay attention to that because that is the first move that an abuser makes is to isolate their victim. Him browbeating you for leaving him alone because he can't bear to be alone. That's some serious bullshit right there. Yeah. I think it's time to talk to a lawyer. And if that means quitting the job that you just recently got and hauling your ass back to the city where you grew up or the city where you're living previously, where you have a support system and people you can call in as the cavalry and say, look, I'm, I got to get out of here. I, this is, this has turned really sour, really bad, gone south, and I need to throw myself on your mercy and ask for help. I need a guest room. I need the couch. I need support. I got to get out of here. And right now, there's this guy out there in the world who's going to be so good to you and he's not going to yell at you. A chill non-yeller. That's what you need. Unfortunately, that means that you will not ultimately wind up with me or Terry. Hey, Dan. So I'm calling for um, my sister, actually, and she um, confided in me the other day that she was a victim of sexual assault. Here's what happened. She met a guy on Tinder. They went out to the first date. She went to go get drinks with the guy. Things were normal. She said that she had only three drinks and that she noticed she started stumbling around. And the guy took note of this and had said, you know, you're stumbling, you're fumbling, come home to my place, have some water, and then go home. I don't want you going straight home. And she said, that sounds great. She's not usually a stumbler after three drinks, so looking back on this, she thinks that she might have been roofied. So she goes back to his place. They're sitting there. He asks to kiss her. Things are going well. And she's like, yeah, you seem like a nice guy. Why not? Kiss me. And then she told me before she knew it, the guy had ripped off her clothes. He was down to her, his boxers. And luckily, she had enough awareness and strength in her to get the fuck out of there. And I, apparently, in the moment, the guy was denying it, saying that he didn't do anything. He didn't know what was going on. He texted her the next day and was like, that didn't happen. So really trying to gaslight her. So, you know, she told me about this event two days after the fact. And it wasn't rape. It was assault. She thinks she was drugged isn't totally sure. What can she do besides block the guy? Like, do you file a police report? Do you just not get drinks with people anymore for fear of getting drugged? What, what, she, what do we do? What should I tell her to do? If she thinks this guy might have roofied her and Occam's razor here kind of sounds like he roofied her. There was an instance once I read about years ago where a woman was at a bar with a man and somebody else put a drug in her drink hoping to scoop her up and the guy that she was with was initially the suspect and it turned out that there was this other dude who did it. But Occam's razor, yeah, that's incredibly unlikely. That is such an outlier, that one woman's experience of being roofied by not the guy that she was on the date with. This guy sounds like for sure he roofied her. Too late for a toxicology test, most likely, but not too late to file a police report, even if she just suspects. There could be a pattern here. If two or three other women have filed reports about this guy, if this guy is a sex offender who has recently been released after being prosecuted for having done this exact thing to someone else, she could return a very dangerous sexual predator to prison where he belongs. So for that reason alone, I would encourage your sister to file that 
police report. Someone who roofies a person has probably roofied other persons. There's always that first time, that magical first time, a sexual predator, some piece of shit asshole roofies someone. But in most cases, somebody who's roofied someone has roofied someone before. There could be three or four other police reports out there. Your sister filing an additional report may cause them to act. There may be just one other report out there. But a second may cause them to act, to have probable cause, to get a warrant, to search his apartment, to find the drugs if indeed he has the drugs in his apartment. And then he could wind up in jail where he belongs. So from me to your sister, please relay this, my encouragement for her to file that report. Hi, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old bi woman living in King County near Seattle, moved from Idaho um, with my husband. And the question is kind of, I have a little cousin. Um, all my cousins are little. He's only 15, but he's the oldest of my cousins besides me. And rumor in the family is that he's probably gay. The, ru- the reason that rumor is, is because his mom found him uh, watching gay furry porn and talking to an adult man online. Um, so he's been banned from the computer, but nobody wants to really talk to him about the potential of him being gay or bi. Nobody in my family, except for a few select members, know that I'm bi. Um, it, I just decided it wasn't their business since I ended up marrying a man. And for a lot of reasons, living in Idaho sucked growing up. And it sucks to think that my little cousin's going through some of the same bullshit that I went through. And I know that nobody's told his father because his father is not exactly the most accepting man ever. And I have actual personal experience with that because when I came out to my aunt and uncle, they were only semi-accepting, definitely made it clear that they thought I was probably going to hell. And I'm sure for him to hear that his oldest son might be gay would be a personal catastrophe to him, which is all in his head. But anyways, so my question is, I've heard on your show before that you don't advise for me to just go up to my cousin and be like, hey, heard you might be gay. Love to be here for you. Um, And I don't want to freak him out. But I also want to let him know that I completely understand where he's coming from. And I know what it's like to grow up in a small town in a red state filled with conservative Christians. I feel like some, one of the only ways might be to let everybody else in my family know that I'm bi, to kind of sideways let him know that I am and that I would be a person to talk to. I feel like if I just go straight to him and be like, hey, did you know that I'm bi? It would let him know that his mother has been gossiping about him. Really confused. I really want to be there for him. This is kind of a really sticky situation and I don't want him to end up being misinformed and talking to random men online at the age of 15. I'd rather him have somebody he could come talk to and find solace in. Um, and I don't want him to have the same problems I had. So the whole family, you say there's a rumor in the family. The whole family knows about the furry porn and the older dude. Yeah. My family all live within a like two mile radius of each other in this small town in Idaho. Um, and we're all very close knit, but the dad doesn't know somehow the whole mom has run around telling everybody, my 15 year old son, I caught him watching very gay porn. I don't think she's told the grandparents. I think she's told my mom, who's her half sister who, and then she told my sister and they told me, um, I think the other family members know that he's in trouble for being on the computer because he skipped school for three weeks and was found out that he was just hiding in his room, mm-hmm. always on the computer. But I don't think they all know about the furry porn and the old dude. 
Okay, well, I don't think this is one of those cases where, you know, there's the kid in the family that you think might be queer and, you know, you don't want to run at that kid and spook him or, or her or them. Um, mm-hmm. Often when that comes up, people are talking to me about nine-year-olds and 10-year-olds and 12-year-olds. Um, and, and they mm-hmm. think they can see sort of, you know, pre-gayness or pre-lesbian or, you know, they're a tomboy and maybe that means they're trans and I should come at them with my, like, you know, that I'm supportive of trans people. Uh, and that sure, can scare a kid sure. who, you know, might be wanting to move through the world without having to worry every moment about how they're being perceived. And if they're otherwise safe, uh, you know, it might be too soon. And, and sometimes I remember, you know, if somebody had asked me when I was 12, when I was pretty sure I might be gay, if I was gay, I would have denied it. It might have delayed me coming out a little bit longer because I would have doubled down on sure. straightness. And so I'm glad I didn't have, you know, besides all the guys calling me a faggot at school. I'm glad I didn't have a lot of relatives coming to me and saying, hey, just so you know, just in case you want to put dicks in your mouth, I'm cool with that. Because I would have been like, I don't want to put dicks in my mouth. But you're talking about a 15-year-old in a pretty vulnerable position where he now feels Mm -hmm. under the microscope, where he's being punished for reaching out online for information and support and erotica Mm -hmm. so he can express himself and, 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 and explore his interests safely in his own room. He shouldn't have been skipping school, but right. You know, he's isolated and he's alone and he's far, far, far behind enemy lines. And I think yeah. in, in, in this instance, you really have to err on the side of making sure this kid knows that there are people in his family who aren't going to punish or shame or gossip about him, but who love him and will mm-hmm. support him and will be there for him. Right. That makes sense. So yeah. you're, you know, we're talking before Christmas. This pro- we probably won't run this call till after Christmas. But if you're going home for Christmas, you know, I, I think you're going to have to make a call here. Whether you come out to the family yourself, right? Fight by erasure. I get in trouble for saying this, mm-hmm. but you know, the way you said, you know, I didn't come out to my family's bike because I married a man, so it didn't seem like I had to, so I didn't. That's one of the biggest drivers of by erasure. You know, people complain about all sorts of different kinds I of know. By erasure. But the bi-closet, because I wound up mm-hmm. with an opposite-sex partner, as the overwhelming majority of bisexual people do, that's the biggest driver right. of bi-erasures, is bi-people erasing themselves. Well, and that's the thing. So my cousin's parents, his mom and dad, know that I'm bi. My one grandmother knows. I just didn't tell my parents, because they're very religious, and my mom has this anxiety, like really bad anxiety, and she really, really holds on to her religion. So this sounds kind of silly saying it out loud, but the idea that she thinks I'm going to go to hell is going to put her in a spiral. <laughs> so I was just like, she, you are not going to get any sympathy from me. Cause I put my mom who is very <laughs> religious in that spiral in 1981 or 1980. I can't remember which. Uh-huh. So if I could do it 30 plus years ago, when there wasn't a lot of information or access out there, even to queer supportive sort of takes on even evangelical Religious traditions, like, yeah, you, that, that's not an excuse anymore. It's 2018, almost 2019. And, yeah. you know, if we let our religious conservative families prevent us from coming out, none of us would have ever come out ever. And we wouldn't have made the progress up to now that we have. But but that's your call to make. Like, you know, some people's parents right. are dangerous and toxic and can't be trusted with this kind of information and don't then deserve our confidence. And people have to make their own calls. At the very least, you need to either tell this kid you're by and that you mm-hmm. live in a much more queer supportive place and you're really sorry to invade his privacy, but it's actually his mother who invaded his privacy and you heard what he's in trouble for and you want to know that he has support. 
Right. And if things get right. shitty at home. Yeah, exactly. Because that, that was the that was the frustrating part was my mom, because she doesn't know that I'm bi, was like, oh, I don't understand why he would hide it if he is gay, because everybody's so accepting now. And I'm like, like you didn't get you were not raised in small town Idaho as a queer person. And, and it sounds like, like you, his you, own father is is homophobic. You said it would be he would regard it as a catastrophe. Yeah, a little. Yeah, it would be a person. I think it would be a personal uh, catastrophe for him because it's his oldest son, and he didn't talk to me for three days. And I, when I came out to him, I was twenty-three, graduated college, was an adult, and just his niece. <laughs> yeah, you need to so. tell this kid. You need to make sure this kid knows. And you know, there's going to him directly. And that's again, you have to like weigh. You know, this kid. I don't know this kid. You know, if, if mm-hmm. he can't make eye contact, if he's just like hiding from everybody, you coming at him could really spook him. And, and make him feel worse about what his mother's already done to him and put him through. So you saying I'm by at a time where you know he's going to hear you, you bringing mm-hmm. up the subject of vulnerable queer youth being thrown out of their houses and needing places. 40% of homeless young people, homeless teenagers are queer kids, bi, lesbian, gay, trans, gender nonconforming, who've been thrown out of their houses by their parents. Right. Mm-hmm. And they're extremely vulnerable right. to suicide, to exploitation, to, to disease. Right. Because of this kind of basically child abuse. I think people should be criminally prosecuted when they throw their queer kids out of the house because a lot of those queer kids wind up dead. Right. right. It's child endangerment, pure and simple. And so you can have a conversation. You know, queer shit is always in the news. It is possible to engineer a conversation, initiate it with your husband's help. That involves the family so that he sees you and your husband standing up for him. Even though you're not directly addressing him, you're standing up for him. And he knows that there are people in his family that he can turn to. My family's just so ignorant about this stuff. And me hearing that he was talking to some old older gentleman on the internet not only freaks me out, but like they don't know anything about like prep about how to be, how to have safe sex, how HIV works. I mean, they're all very, and I, I want him to know these things before right. he does what half of my high school friends did is move to Seattle and end up kind of homeless because there are, there they are, don't know anything and put themselves in dangerous situations. There are definitely older men on the internet who are preying on teenagers who are looking for vulnerable, mm-hmm. isolated teenagers that they can manipulate and exploit. Why are those teenagers isolated and easily manipulated and exploited? Because they have no support. Because they can't tell their parents what they're going through, right? And and they regard right. their parents as their mortal enemies. And so they turn t- to the internet for support. Not every older person on the internet, older queer person who speaks with a younger queer person is a monster looking to skin your nephew and wear his <laughs> you know, right. wear him as a suit or even to sure. engage with him sexually it is often the case that older gay men will you know be on a dating app and will get a message from somebody not even knowing that they're 15 years old there are a lot of kids who get online and pretend that they're 18 or 20 mm-hmm. because they want to connect right. and they want some support and they want some advice and they want to be acknowledged and affirmed as as attractive like they're watching their straight peers date and fuck and lose their virginities and in a place like Idaho at 17 or 18 get married <laughs> and they got no one and nothing right. like their peers who are queer aren't out they don't know where they can't turn to the gay support group in their high school because there ain't one 
They're mm-hmm. so alone. Right. And so you can't regard the fact that he spoke to an older person online as proof that he was about to be sex trafficked off to a brothel in New Orleans or something. Because it could be that he spoke <laughs> to an older person online who's like, dude, you're 15 years old. You know, thank you for telling me that. And, you know, here's a few things that I wish someone had told me when I was 15. And you need to be careful out there. I've known people who've had those kind of intervention-like conversations with somebody they met on a dating app who turned out to be a minor, where then they said everything that this kid needed to hear, but they didn't then mm-hmm. fuck that kid. You know, that, that that really taps into this idea that all, particularly gay male adults, are these predators who are primarily interested or solely interested in teenage boys, and that's just not true. There's a lot of teenage boys exactly. who get online and throw themselves at you know, put themselves out there because they're interested in at least being seen and acknowledged. Right, exactly. And and in most cases, you know, there's certainly cases that make the news where the guy, you know, fucked the 15-year-old. The cases where the guy didn't fuck the 15-year-old when he found out he was 15 backed off and said, you shouldn't even be on Grinder, and you need to be careful. Right. And, you know, if you found the conversation that he had – I'd say there's at least a 50-50 chance that your nephew found out about prep because the guy he had that convo with told him about prep. Yeah. And who's going to tell him about prep? Not his parents. No. Not sex ed in the shitty school he's going to. No, yeah, that that was my that was my my second biggest my first concern was the fact that his parents took away all of his computers and stuff which isolated him more mm-hmm. and then so I was worried about him cuz I know like he has self-confidence issues because he has a younger brother who's very Mr. Popular in sports and he's always been the Uh nerdy shy type. Uh So he already, so there's already that. Even that Mm -hmm. you need to just go to him and say the nerdy shy types rule the world. (laughs) Exactly. I'm the nerdy one too. Right. The nerdy shy types. Nerdy older sister. They go everywhere. Like Mm -hmm. I would say to this kid, if I was talking to him and I haven't been, it wasn't me. I didn't talk to your furry nephew. I would say to him, yeah, it really sucks to, you know, grow up in a place and feel like you're and you know going to be exiled, you're going to be thrown out because the people there don't want you. But look around, look at what you're being cast out of. You're going to have a much mm-hmm. more interesting life because you can't stay there. And that popular kid in high school is going to stay there and he's going to wind up managing a Hardee's. You're going to move somewhere interesting <laughs> and wind up doing something interesting and being someone interesting. Because of your right. difference, because your difference is unacceptable here, you're going to find a place where you are accepted. and You're going to be so much happier, right? Because that's that's exactly what I did. That's why now I live near Seattle. So, like, I that's why I was just making sure if I approach him, like, I feel like the best example. Like, obviously, I grew up. I understand what he's. I totally understand what he's going through. I never told my parents. Go to him, please, and please now say I these live to him. It's a delicate balance. You don't want to spook mm-hmm. a kid particularly a kid who's like worried about how he's being perceived and worried about everybody knowing, but you don't want to three months from now, wish you'd said something when you're heading home to your nephew's funeral. Right. Because he offed himself because his parents took his computer away because his dad is bullying him because his dad knows he's gay. You just don't know. He knows he's gay because his mom is kink shaming him and depriving Mm -hmm. him of the technology that gave him the only connection to an idea of what a future might look like for him and uh, the only connection he might have to his community. You talk to, talk to 25 year old, 30 year old queer people now 
And so many of them got through that stage of their life because they found an online community where they felt accepted and affirmed, particularly people with, you know, not just queer sexuality, but then further marginalized or stigmatized sexualities because they're kinky. Right. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So, well, that gives me, that gives me definitely more of a direction to go. And I don't know if I'm going to do the, the very stereotypical coming out of Christmas dinner. But but there are people in your family who already know, and you can make sure. If you want to do it like the bank shot, letting this kid know that you're there for him, you can do it where you just engineer that conversation, where you're talking to people who already know about who you are. Just make sure he's within earshot. Right, exactly. Okay. Or based on like... The feel you get from him when you're there, because you're going to get to talk to him, look him, you know, look into his eyes. If you feel he might benefit from like a much more, hey, look, I'm queer too. Sorry, your mother violated your confidence mm-hmm. and your privacy in that way. Not fair, but I'm here for you. Here's my phone number. If you need support, mm-hmm. if things get really dire, even if you just need to unload, you need someone to talk to, call me. Right. Well, great. Well, yeah. Thank you, Dan, for calling me back. I was kind of afraid I totally missed out on talking to you. <laughs> nope. I really wanted to talk to you. Um, and yeah, I, I feel for him. I really do. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's not easy being 15 in general. Yeah. And a 15 year old gay furry in Idaho somewhere. That's not easy. All right. Thank you so much, Dan. Bye. Hey, I'm a 20 something straight guy from the East Coast. And I'm calling because I'm having some issues like my conscience and then stuff and a relationship. So me and my girlfriend are uh, open and we've been able to, you know, have partners outside of our relationship and nothing uh, romantic, just physical. But I've had this issue where I have these fantasies with sex workers and I've indulged them and we've had trouble with it because she doesn't approve and I get tested regularly I'm not abusive or anything. It's not something, I, just something I'm ashamed of, but I just kind of enjoy. We've been, I've been doing really well, and it's only happened a handful of times over the course of a four- or five-year relationship. I'm just kind of slipped up recently, went to a massage parlor I knew was going to be a sort of happy ending massage parlor. And yeah, it happened. And now I'm in this situation where I know if I tell her, she'll get really upset and same argument. I don't know. Should I tell her or should I just sort of like keep this one and keep the guilt? If you know yourself to be incapable of continuing to patronize sex workers, I don't think there's anything wrong with seeing a sex worker. This isn't the relationship for you, open or otherwise. She's the wrong partner for you because you're going to continue to violate her trust in this way. You're going to continue to break the rules of the open relationship that you're in. And that's not fair to her. It's also not fair to you because you don't want to feel this shitty guilt every time you do this thing. This thing. You say it happened. You did it. Every time you do this thing, you're going to feel what you feel right now. And it doesn't sound like you enjoy this feeling. You're not one of those people who gets off on the – guilt or gets off on the lies and the secrecy, you want to be in an open relationship where there aren't lies and there isn't secrecy and you don't have to feel this guilt. But if this isn't something you ever want to do again, if you feel terrible about this, if you really don't want to see sex workers because you want to honor the terms of your open relationship and you just fucked up like the person who's in a monogamous relationship who has the one-off affair or 
go to the massage parlor and get the happy ending. If you're sure it's not going to happen again and there's no risk and no one was harmed or could be harmed, then you just eat the guilt. You keep your mouth shut. You can take that to the grave. But you need to ask yourself if this longstanding fantasy of yours, something about that commodified exchange, something about seeing a sex worker, that turns you on. It's not just about the physical contact. It's not just about uh, an outside sexual experience. It's that kind of sexual experience. If that turns you on, yeah, you might need a girlfriend who or a partner who feels differently about you seeing sex workers than the woman you're with right now feels. Because if it's really some deep-seated kink, if it's really a, a desire that can't just be willed away or walked away from to appease your partner, you're going to keep doing this. It's not going to keep happening to you. You're going to keep doing it. And eventually, if you keep doing it because it's necessary on some level for your sense of sexual fulfillment and contentment, it's going to blow this relationship up. Now, maybe you can have a conversation with your girlfriend, a mediated conversation with a pro-sex work, pro-kink counselor who can help her feel more comfortable about you occasionally seeing a sex worker. But if that's not possible, this isn't something that your girlfriend could ever accept and it's not something that you're ever going to be able to stop doing at least once in a while, then you're going to want to end this relationship before it blows up in your face. Hey, Dan, I am a recently married, I guess, middle-aged lady uh, in Southern California, and me and my husband just moved to the West Coast to take care of his aging parents. And since we've been here, his father, I've realized his father is quite emotionally abusive um, towards everybody in the family. And uh, it's actually triggering some home issues that I had growing up where I was raised by a man for 20 years who was physically, sexually, and emotionally abusive towards me. Um, I'm currently trying to be in therapy for that, but since I've moved, I haven't been able to uh, find a new therapist to get me through the PTSD. So the reason why I'm calling is because living here, frankly, we're broke from uh, moving here cross country. And then the other thing is, is we're here to help, but his dad will not stop the emotional abuse. Like we're talking several emails a day. I've asked him to stop emailing me on my work account and he will not. And like I'm asking him to stop typing all in caps because it's rude. And he sends me 17 emails back of why it's not rude. It's, it's really crazy. And, um, the situation with him and, uh, his mom is not much better. And pretty much the whole family has just stopped really dealing with him. And then here we are. So now I get to deal with him all over again. My first instinct is to fight him, <laughs> but I don't, I don't know. I feel like if I just sit here, I'm letting abuse happen to me again. He's your father-in-law. He's family. You're there to take care of him, but your husband really needs to take the lion's share of the responsibility here. Your husband needs to be your first line of defense. Your husband needs to go to his dad and say you have to stop sending emails, abusive emails, all caps emails or text messages to my wife. It is upsetting to her. She had abusive parents as a child. I'm not calling you an abuser. Maybe it's not coming from the same place, but she experiences it as triggering and you have to knock that shit the fuck off. And then if he doesn't knock that shit the fuck off, block him. You don't have to receive emails from him. Your husband can receive emails and communications from his 
father. And then he can relay whatever needs to be relayed to you on his father's behalf in a calm and measured way. You can take care of someone. You can be there for them without having to receive their angry emails. It used to be possible for family to take care of family before there was such a thing as emails or text messages. So feel free to block him. Or create a filter on your email that segregates, that sends off his emails to a special box and only look at them when you're feeling rock solid and it's not going to bother you. Or give him an email address to an account that you never look at. But your husband needs to take responsibility for the person that his dad is. Your husband is there to take care of his aging parents and you are there to assist your husband. You are not the first line of defense he is. And now your tweets. Babylon Leather tweets, listening to an old episode of the Savage Lovecast where you, Dan, were looking for that feeling after good sex and you said afterglow. We call that hashtag fuck drunk in our play group here and it caught on with another local sex podcast and I think it's going to catch on with mine now. Thank you, Babylon Leather. Andrew tweets, I am some weeks behind, but I have listened to every episode of the Savage Lovecast, and I think Stormy Daniels gave by far the most thoughtful advice of any guest ever. We have some Stormy Daniels news coming up soon in the new year that I'm very excited to share. As soon as we have nailed it down, you'll all hear about it here first on the Savage Lovecast. And Carrie Pollock tweets, regarding the woman in episode 634 who was 75 years old and desperately horny, you suggested that she look for a man her age or older. Why not younger? She said she feels like she's 57. Maybe she can expand her search. Some men dig older women. Very good point, Carrie. Very good catch. Thank you for writing in. If you want me to read one of your tweets on a future episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. Hi, Dan, uh, Nancy, and the tech savvy at Refuse. I'm calling in regards to episode 636, uh, your advice about the guy who is in love with his female best friend who is not interested. And there's one piece of information, one detail that I think you glossed over, Dan. They're spending a lot of their time slow dancing together and learning love songs together and doing a whole bunch of romantic activities. And while ending the friendship may be the right course of action, it could just be that not doing romantic stuff together will stop his romantic feelings for her. So maybe he suggests instead of we can't be friends anymore, that we stop doing these slow dances and love songs together and instead go to movies or go get dinner with groups or uh, go play mini golf or things that are not quite so romantic and not quite so date feeling. And maybe some of his feelings will subside because maybe they're just coming from what they're doing instead of just the fact of their relationship. I'm calling in regard to the person who had a problem with her vibrators both dying and trying to figure out how to recycle them. Um, the issue in both circumstances is the battery. They're an environmental nightmare. That's the thing that you need to recycle the most. Um, that's also why it's dying. Same reason your iPhone dies after two or three years, vibrators die. Battery technology is not where it needs to be. And even the most expensive vibrators are going to die after about that time, two, three years max. The best thing to do is, my opinion, since you wouldn't want to throw the thing in a, in a landfill, is to take it apart, at least pull out the battery, pull out the motor. You could throw those into a, into a recycling bin that recycles batteries and be a lot more environmentally conscious that way. Throwing it in a landfill, terrible idea. That battery is the worst part of it. That's the thing you do not want to re, um, just throw in the trash. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to episode 636 and the sister who was having the awkward conversation with her teenage brother on his potential threesome. I did want to share an experience I had in college many years ago. It was spring break my junior year, and I had my first threesome. 
with true friends. Being at a small liberal arts college and being a little braggadoshi, um, I confided in some of my close friends and gained that social capital that you referenced in regards to your brother. What I hadn't considered at the time was how my social capital came at the expense of slut-shaming my two female friends that had invited me into that threesome. I definitely was not mature enough at the age of 21 for my first threesome and feel that your brother is in the same position. As a older female role model to your brother, you have a unique opportunity to teach your brother how to view things through the eyes of a female. And I think that you should also use this opportunity to talk to your brother about things like consent and slut shaming and the topics that you wish that guys that you had seen maybe would have reflected on your experiences with them. Thanks, Dan. And thanks, caller. Keep up the great work. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.